Hello and welcome to Twin Talk. We are back. We were not here for the month of April, but here we are on Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> yeah, and I'm here at Joy's house sitting across the table from her. We are so excited to be with you because we get to discuss a really, really good book, Sea Biscuit. It's been a long time coming. Mm-hmm. Joy and I have mentioned this several times that we're going to do this book, and here we are. So let's get started. Inside the book cover dust jacket, there is a quote that reads, The true story of how three men and a great racehorse captivated the world. And that really does sum up the book. It's a book about the lives of three men and a racehorse named Seabiscuit. It was on the New York Times number one bestseller list. I don't know for how long, but we know it was there. Okay, so Joy and I both listened to this on Audible. But... I love the book so much that I went ahead and bought the hard copy. Oh, I did too. Mm -hmm. I did too. So we both have the hard copy of the book. One Um, thing I do want to mention before we get real deep into this is how we decided to read Seed Biscuit. Last summer, or maybe it was the summer before last, we rented a house by the lake. Oh, in Hot Springs. In Hot Springs, Arkansas. And uh, we had some downtime, and I saw a book laying there on the coffee table. And it was Seabiscuit. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'd heard of the book. I'd heard, I guess I'd heard of the movie, but I didn't really know much. I knew it was a famous racehorse. That's about all I knew. And I picked up the book and started reading it, and I was immediately sucked in. Like, within just a few minutes of reading the book, I was like, wow, this is really good. But we were busy and going places, and I just didn't get a chance to read the whole book. I only read the first part, and that's where I got the idea to get it on Audible. And for those of you who don't know, Hot Springs actually has a racetrack. It's like a horse racing town. So that makes sense that they had the book about Seabiscuit lying there on the table. So anyway, that's kind of the origin of where I found the book, discovered the book, then I told you about it. Next thing I know, we're both listening to it on Audible. Yeah, and you're right. I honestly don't think I would have come across or thought to read Seabiscuit right. had we and not never, stumbled Like, if it, it was on a list of books to read, I would be like, eh, I don't know, race, horse, uh, I probably would have passed. Yeah. But so, I'm so glad I didn't. I'm so glad I picked up that book and read it. I am going to read part of the preface. In 1938, near the end of a decade of monumental turmoil, the year's number one newsmaker was not Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Hitler, or Mussolini. It wasn't Pope Pius the XI, whatever that is. 11th? Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Nor was it Lou Gehrig, Howard Hughes, or Clark Gable. The subject of the most newspaper column inches in 1938 wasn't even a person. It was an undersized, crooked-legged racehorse named Seabiscuit. In the later half of the Depression, Seabiscuit was nothing short of a cultural icon in America, enjoying adulation so intense and broad-based that it transcended sport. When he raced, his fans choked local roads, poured out of special cross-country Seabiscuit limited trains, packed the hotels, and cleaned out the restaurants. They tucked their Roosevelt dollars into Seabiscuit wallets, Bought Seabiscuit hats on Fifth Avenue, played at least nine parlor games bearing his image. Tuning in to radio broadcasts of his races was a weekend ritual across the country, drawing as many as 40 million listeners. 
His appearances smashed attendance records at nearly every major track and drew two of the three largest throngs ever to see a horse race in the United States. In an era when the United States population was less than half its current size, 78,000 people witnessed his last race, a crowd comparable to those of today's Super Bowl. As many as 40,000 fans mobbed tracks just to watch his workouts, while thousands of others braved ice storms and murderous heat to catch a glimpse of his private 80-foot Pullman rail car. He galloped over Manhattan on massive billboards and was featured week after week, year after year, in Time, Life, Newsweek, Look, Pick, and The New Yorker. His trainer, jockey, and owner became heroes in their own right, and their every movie was painted by the glare of the flashbulb. In 1936, on a sultry August Sunday in Detroit, Pollard, Smith, and Howard formed an unlikely alliance. Recognizing the talent dormant in the horse and in one another, they began a rehabilitation of Seabiscuit that would lift him and them from obscurity. If that did not make you want to read this book... I give up. Yeah. It's just one of the best books I've ever read. I love this book. And, yeah, she just summed it up right there. Man, this horse literally took the nation by storm. He was beloved. And you do. You grow to love him. As you read the book, you just grow to love Seabiscuit. You love his character. You love his heart. You love his grit. And, man... When he died at the end. Every time. I've, I've listened to the book two or three times now. Why are you going there? Sorry. Oh. I just want to say that every time I'm like, <laughs> oh, I know it's coming. But every time it's heartbreaking. So what is it about the book to you? What made it so special? To me, it was Laura Hillenbrand, of course. We know she wrote. You know, I don't think I mentioned that she was the author. Um, yes, Laura Hillenbrand. We know she, she wrote, wrote Unbroken. To me, she's just a master. Like we were saying earlier before the podcast, she just took something that might could have been a boring subject to some people, but just she brings the horse to life. She she shows us his personality. She finds stories, actual true stories that people told, and she, she gives him a personality and shows us his heart and soul. And, and then the main characters, you've got the jockey, Pollard, you've got the trainer, which is Tom Smith, the owner, which is Charles Howard, and every one of them have a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. And how fate, whatever you want to call it, brought them all together and how they all came together. It's like all, everything had to be perfect for all of them to come together at the perfect time with the perfect horse for the story to happen. And she just brings each character a lot to life in a way that. She just has a way of riding that just brings you in and you just feel like you're there. That's Especially during the races and stuff. She does a good job of describing the different races. And you, I literally could feel my heart beating sometimes and just pulling for Seabiscuit, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I, I loved it because it was nonfiction. And, and you're literally reading all these fascinating facts about these men and about just about the, the world of horse mm-hmm. racing. and. It, Everything was so interesting. Yes. It was so And I was clueless about what life was like for the jockeys. Mm-hmm. That I will say this. It is shocking. You know, they could only weigh so much and just talked about 
all the health problems they had. Oh my gosh, and, the Herculean efforts uh, these men went through mm-hmm. to stay at, at the, the, weight. the weight that mm-hmm. they needed. I mean, 130 was considered heavy. Yeah, I thought they all well, weighed 128. around 10. Well, or remember so. there were times when Seabiscuit had 100 up to 130 pounds on him, which they yeah. said was like really heavy. The chapters about the jockeys was the most interesting part. To me, of it the was books. the most. I don't know if it's the most. It was one of the most shocking parts to me. It was all interesting to me, but yeah, I would definitely say if you're going to read the book, it's very, very interesting, very shocking about what these jockeys went through physically Just and mentally. One example: there were, of course, being at a racetrack, there was always big piles of manure everywhere. Well, after this manure had set out in the sun and dried, you know, for weeks and months on end, it would, I guess it would just kind of harden over there. But the jockeys would literally go dig a hole down into this pile of manure. <laughs> I forgot about that. And they would literally bury themselves in it to make themselves sweat. I mean, that was just one thing mm-hmm. they did. I mean, just you talking about they something They would just avoid nasty. food. They would avoid water. They would make themselves throw up. Yeah, a lot of times they would pass out because they And then you got, anything. yeah, then you have these jockeys, which is super dangerous. They're on these super fast horses, mm-hmm. and they're about to pass out. And that's how George Wolf died, right? He yeah, passed, he had diabetes, he had diabetes or, yeah. but he passed out while he was mm-hmm. riding and fell off his horse. Oh, yeah. and, and, um, and it killed him. And some of them were, and there, apparently there was a lot of little dirty tricks that went on. Like, mm-hmm. they would try to do things to each other's horses oh, and yeah. kick each other and pull and we yeah, there way was a across lot of the racetrack and people couldn't see what was going on. Yeah, they on. couldn't see on the other side of the grandstand, so there's a lot of uh, dirty stuff going on. She did a really good job explaining what it was like riding a racehorse. She's mm-hmm. talking about the balance it required mm-hmm. and like when the horse's head comes back, the force and mm-hmm. just really good explaining how dangerous it is. Just yeah, to ride you don't realize these jockeys are really very athletic. You have to be very athletic to ride mm-hmm. these horses at such speeds and to know how to maneuver them. And I didn't realize how much strategy was involved either until I read the book. The other thing I really liked about this book was. Not just Sea Biscuit, but getting to read about all the horses and their personalities. Yeah. And before the podcast, Joy and I was talking about that, and she was like, "Did you know how horses had personalities?" And I was like, "No." I knew they had personalities. Well, I mean, I did too, but, but what not I to did, the extent. Yes. That she what I, what I, what I was trying to say was, I mean, obviously, all animals have their own personalities, you know. But what I didn't know was that horses take pride that they they actually. <laughs> take pride when they win according to this book mm-hmm. when, yeah and we need to say right now we know nothing about horses right, i think it's pretty right. obvious yeah it's pretty yeah we don't know anything about horses yeah, this is just what we read just in the what book. we read in the yeah. book what i learned was they said like when sea biscuit would win he was almost like a bully he would kind of flaunt it and kind of mm-hmm. you know they said he'd have a like an extra bounce in his step or whatever <laughs> yeah. and, and he would kind of and then what i loved and we were talking about this too like they said he was notorious for when he was racing he would let the other horse catch up with them, and then they, he said, once they looked him in the eye, <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, yeah, you're with me. And they said, it was once the horses saw, looked each other in the eye, uh, Seabiscuit would just take off and leave them oh. in the dust. Oh, like wow. he was playing with yes, them. Yes. Wow. what's funny, too, is it said the horses that lost would hang their head and almost be embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm like, okay, I want to see this personally. <laughs> really? Horses really know if they've won or lost? Well, yeah. they, according to this book, and they, they do. And, and she says in the book that horses have that instinct and that desire to win. To win. Yes. That they want to be. I like, knew they had yeah. the desire to run. Mm-hmm. I knew that was kind of instinctively yeah. in a lot of horses, and they just mm-hmm. love to run and be fast. But I didn't realize that they knew if they were winning or losing. Well, and then she talked about... When they would be uh, practicing, you know, mm-hmm. or training during the week, they would always have a horse they would put with that horse, and they would always think, okay, they would never put a horse in that might beat the other horse because they didn't want them to become discouraged. Oh, I didn't yeah, catch that part. They were, they were, well, know, was it Kayak? That, um, <laughs> kayak was another horse that Charles Howard owned. That's they would horse. run Kayak with Seabiscuit a lot, yes. and Kayak... Could almost beat Seabiscuit, but never, never could pull it out. They said um, Seabiscuit just almost like lorded it over him. So yeah. I would just love to see some of this stuff on film so I could see how do they know? That, I don't know. They just said they could good. tell by the way they acted. So still talking about what makes the book so special. So Joy already touched on this about what are the chances that these three men came to me. And that's what I was thinking when I was reading the book. I thought, you know, we got these three men who under normal circumstances would have never been even friends. They wouldn't have even ran in the same social circles, okay? But they Mm -hmm. were kind of, it was like they were brought together by fate. One of the most interesting things about the book to me is this all happened during one of the worst periods of American history, okay? It happened during the Great Depression. And I think that's one of the things that I love the most about the book because there's millions and millions of Americans who are out of work. They're hungry, they don't really have any joy in life. Everything's mundane. They're worried about their next meal. And then out of nowhere comes this horse who is a true underdog. Because he, when he started mm-hmm. out, he wasn't Oh, yeah. They races. were even embarrassed to show him to the yeah, he, owner because, or at the time when he was born. Because they're like, oh. He didn't look like a racehorse. He didn't act like yes. one. He wasn't winning races. And he then was, all yeah, sudden, All reports say he was. his legs didn't start out. He was short and stubby. He just was not like a... They said he was nothing to look yeah, at. Yeah, he was nothing to look at. He, it's like he gave everyone hope. Oh, mm-hmm. look at this little underdog. And, oh, he's doing, like, things that are unheard of. You know, he was winning these races against all these horses who were supposed to be him. And he had more weight than them. I mean, he was doing stuff that was unheard of. Yes, you know? and that's one thing that you really need, need to read the book to truly get how great of an... Like, athlete I yes guess call the athlete and how was. much heart he had because yeah. what they would do what's it called handicap or yeah joy's right so uh, like you know every horse had a it wasn't a just that he limit. was winning races it's just he was winning right. with a much impost i think is what they called it yeah uh, his yeah. impost would be like 128 whereas yeah. the horse next to him might only have someone with you know 110 yeah. once he started winning then mm-hmm. they started allowing him to carry extra weight right. and it really wasn't fair the way she described it really yeah. wasn't fair the way they're doing it okay well, let's talk about the main players in the book so Seabiscuit of course is going to be the star of the book but his owner was Charles Howard his trainer was Tom Smith and Tom Smith was one of my favorite characters yeah, in the book we'll I like talk him about silent him. Tom and then his jockey Red Pollard uh, he was an interesting character. There was also another jockey named George Wolf. There was actually two jockeys yeah. because one got hurt and the other kind of had to step See, in. See, to for me, a big that's race. another fascinating. There's so many fascinating stories. 
But at the same time that Seabiscuit was hurt was when Red Pollard was hurt, mm-hmm. and they both recovered they together. They convalesced together. Was that yes, not crazy? Yes, they both actually recovered together, convalesced is a good word, mm-hmm. on the ranch out in California that was owned by Charles Howard, mm-hmm. and they thought that they were both washed out, they're done, it's impossible. And to me, it's, that's one of the greatest comeback stories in sports to me because if you consider the sports that they both ended up coming back from like i mean horrible horrible uh, especially red pollard he was very he was banged up really well really good yeah they told him he'd probably never race that's again. the whole fairy tale quality of this yeah book. it's like the great comeback not just by sea biscuit but by human being yes. too and the fact that they both did it together Okay, so Seabiscuit, he was foaled in 1933 near Paris, Kentucky. His sire was hardtack, and his dam was swing-on. And Joy and I had to be educated a little bit before the podcast. We're like, is is sire, is that the daddy, or is that the mom? (laughs) That's the dad. So we figured it out. Sire is the dad, dam is the mom. Yeah, Yeah. okay. Anyway, we've already mentioned he was undersized. with They said he had a sad little tail. (laughs) He had knees that wouldn't straighten all the way. And here's, Joy, this was one of my favorite parts of the Mm -hmm. book. I'm actually going to read a paragraph because I love this. Okay. He is a horse after my own heart because there's two things he loved to do in life. Mm -hmm. Eat and sleep. Yes, amen. And I mean a lot. The average stabled horse spends just five minutes at a time lying down to sleep almost always at night. Mm -hmm. Seabiscuit was the exception. He could kill over and snooze for hours on end. His inability to straighten his knees all the way may have been the culprit, preventing him from locking his forelegs in the upright position. Fortunately, he suffered no negative consequences. While every other horse at the track raced hell demanding breakfast, he slept long and late, stretching out over the floor of his stall in such deep sedation that the grooms had to use every means in their power just to get him to stand up. He was so quiet that Fitzsimmons' assistant trainers once forgot about him and left him in a van for an entire afternoon in brutal heat while they went for a beer. (laughs) They found him three hours later, pitched over on his side, blissfully asleep. Mm. No one had ever seen a horse so relaxed. Fitzsimmons would remember him as a big dog, the most easygoing horse he had ever trained, and the only thing Seabiscuit took more seriously, aside from his beauty rest, was eating, which he did constantly and with great vigor. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, He's my kind of horse. He loved to eat he and sleep. He loved to eat and, what's and he funny loved to sleep. <laughs> is when he would race, he just wasn't giving it his all at the beginning, and he knew he had everybody fooled. Yeah. <laughs> like... He just didn't want to. He just wasn't motivated. This is one you were going to yes. ask me about one of my favorite. Yes, that's my yeah, story. Tom Smith was like, "Okay, this horse has everybody <laughs> fooled but me. Everybody else had written him off as this lazy, no good, ugly." He said, "There is something to this horse. There is something in him." And he just started watching him, mm-hmm. and he started spending time with him, and he figured out this horse has a lot more in him than what he's showing us. Mm-hmm. And it's long and complicated, but Tom Smith found a way to train him. He basically let him just do what he wanted. Remember yeah. at first he let him sleep. They said, don't bother him till he, when he wakes up, when he wakes up. Seabiscuit was depressed for a while and he was yeah. agitated. And it was caused the way he was being treated. They said he was mishandled in the beginning. Mishandled and they were racing him way too much. Yeah. He was worn out. So once um, the trainer, Tom Smith, got him... He figured out 
what he needed. I know it sounds like a human, but like emotionally, physically, everything. And he motivated him. And then once he figured out the right way to handle him, then they saw, oh, this horse does have some, you know, get up and go in him. So I love that Seabiscuit had everybody fooled. When Tom Smith first got him, he had one of his a jockey or a trainer get on him just to kind of see what he would do. And I actually was going to just read real quick that paragraph because it's it's one of my favorite in the book. Oh, okay. Once Seabiscuit <coughs> was settled in at Detroit, Smith took the colt to the track to stretch his legs, and it was a disaster. Seabiscuit didn't run. He rampaged. When the rider asked him for speed, he slowed down. When he tried <laughs> to rein him in, he bolted, thrashing around like a hooked marlin. Asked to go left, he'd dodge right. Tugged right, he'd dart left. The beleaguered rider could do no better than cling to the horse's neck for dear life. Smith watched his eyes following the coat as he careened across the track, running as a moth flies. Smith knew what he was seeing. Seabiscuit's competitive instincts had been turned backward. Instead of directing his efforts against his opponents, he was directing them against the handlers who tried to force him to run. He habitually met every command with resistance. He was feeding off the fight, gaining satisfaction from the distress and rage of the man on his back. Smith knew how to stop it. He had to take coercion out of the equation and let the horse discover the pleasure of speed. He called out to the rider, let him go. And what mm-hmm. happened was when he said, just let him go, let him do it. And they said that Seabiscuit just took off. Ran wild for a while, and then they said he stopped and like was looking around, like, "What yeah, do like, I do now?" Yeah, what and now? Do you remember he went just, back to his stable, yeah, and, and he's like, "Oh, okay, I can do what I want." And yeah. He just walked back and to he his just stable. Walked back to his stable, and, and Tom walked over and gave him a carrot. Yeah, and he said after that he was the perfect horse. Right. He said after that he was fine. The other one of my favorite story I have, and you've already mentioned this. We're talking about how. He kind of lorded it over the other horses every time. So there was one. This was my kind favorite. Kind of a show off. There was this horse that did not like to get beat by Seabiscuit. Yeah. And they said that every time Seabiscuit would go by this horse's stall, start just running around and going crazy, stomping his feet. Yeah. But they said they literally had to move the horse to a different building. Mm-hmm. And then when they would be leading Seabiscuit Biscuit by, they'd have to close this horse's stall doors. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like that other horse could not tolerate Seabiscuit because he got so yeah, sick they of being Yeah, they said he couldn't even handle his presence. Right. And so, anyway, I... Joy, I just think that's fascinating. That is fascinating. All right, so let's talk about Charles Howard. He's the owner. Now, he was an interesting, he had yeah, an interesting Yeah, very life. interesting story. I'll go ahead and read a little bit about him. Charles Howard invented sports marketing. He would woo the press every chance he got. He didn't want for this horse only to be successful. He wanted him to be a superstar in America. He made mm-hmm. sure that every reporter knew everything that was going on. They said Charles Howard would call mm-hmm. the guys in the, at the newspapers. He would send barrels of champagne to the press box. He would run up to the press box after races to see if anybody wanted him to comment. He would pull Seabiscuit's shoes off after races and have them cast into silver ashtrays. He was everywhere the press was. He carried around a book filled with 
phone numbers of all the press so that the, they could call him and give them updates. And he made everybody feel like they had a scoop. And that encouraged everyone to cover the horse. He's smart dude. I know. He mm. was smart. As a result <clears throat> of this, Seabiscuit was the number one story in newspapers in 1938. He received more newspaper column inches than anybody else. Roosevelt was second and Hitler was third. Isn't that I love crazy? That. I love that. But you're right. Charles Howard, he knew what he was doing. He knew how to get some press for his horse and it paid off. The movie Seabiscuit, they do focus a lot on Charles Howard's life and it's kind of sad he had a son that we don't really mention that here, but well, he, let's talk about the irony here. Yeah, that he was pretty poor, not yeah. much money to his name. I think that's it. He had twenty cents to his yeah, name. Yeah, twenty or cents to his yeah. name, and he goes to San Francisco, and it's a long story. But he said, "I wouldn't give two cents for the best horse." He's trying to sell mm-hmm. automobiles, and right. he kind of was like, "I think that's ironic," because you know later he be. You know, he becomes so known for yeah. horses. Can't I just remember so he times. went to one of the biggest dealerships in America yes. at the time. And he started his own dealership out there in San Francisco. And he mm-hmm. became very, very yes, rich from it. very. They owned a big, know. huge ranch out in California. And his son, who was only, what, 14 or 15? And yeah. two of the son's friends decide they're going to go fishing. And they're in one of the automobiles that Charles Howard owned. The story is they just dot. They went to dodge something in the road. Do you remember what it was? I heard he dodged a boulder. They dodged something, and the car went over a ravine or something. And the two of the boys survived, but the Charles Howard's son died. Yeah, and that's what's so ironic because he was selling automobiles, yes. which few people, not many people, had automobiles. Yes. And then his son ended up dying. And in an so automobile. the yeah. thought process, or what she led me to believe in the book, was that he almost came to despise the automobile and that's why he turned back to horse racing because that's what killed his son it is wild that the thing that made him so wealthy is the thing that killed his son it's just sad and of course he never was the same after that and his Mm -hmm. marriage didn't survive like Mm -hmm. so many marriages don't survive after the death of a child and i think Mm -hmm. i can see why Okay, so next is Tom Smith, and he's the trainer. And like I said earlier, he was absolutely one of my favorite. Mm. So Tom Smith, how do we say he was a man of few words? Yeah, our grandpa pulling, I'm sure that he used to talk. Yeah. But I swear I only heard him say a handful of words my whole life. And I kept yeah. picturing him as we talked about, as they talked about Tom Smith, because mm-hmm. they called him Silent Tom. He never talked. Mm. Some people thought he might be mute. Yes, they said he was practically mute because he just didn't talk. He drove the press crazy. Oh, yeah. Because they wouldn't want to get a comment out of him. And they said if they got three words out of him, it was a big deal. Yeah. But they portrayed him as this man who used to live out on the range and he would train wild mustangs and wild horses he was just like an old-time cowboy no oh, he one would really sleep knew with the horses him. like he literally would sleep in the stalls with the horses mm-hmm. or on the ground he never really they say he had a wife and a son but there's mm-hmm. not much said about him but yeah he just picture this lone cowboy type guy mm-hmm. living out on the plains but they said he was a genius with horses. Yeah, like almost, almost like, like a, a horse whisperer. Yes, yeah, yeah, almost like a horse whisperer. So you got this rich guy selling cars, flashy, wants the media in on everything, wants to make his horse famous, and he hooks up with this guy who barely says three words and doesn't want attention and, and, doesn't and can't want stand attention. the media. And uh-huh. that's you're asking about mm-hmm. favorite stories from the book. Basically, there's this battle going on between Tom mm-hmm. Smith. 
and the press because mm-hmm. the press is always wanting when's Seabiscuit gonna practice and what's his time and they want to clock him. <laughs> yeah. And Tom would do these little play little tricks on the media. Oh, that like, was that was the other yes. thing I loved about the he book. would bring. Okay, so Seabiscuit <laughs> had a brother named. Uh, oh, what yeah. was the brother's name? Close. I can't it, remember. It was something weird. Though. It was, uh, but what's funny but is they were, but they were like twins. Yes, they, they looked identical. a lot. What Tom Smith would do is he would take Seabiscuit's brother out mm-hmm. and have him race. Of course, he wasn't nearly as fast, and all mm-hmm. the reporters, right, they're out clocking him going, ooh. And do you remember this story? Sorry, but they said the reporters started getting suspicious because somebody said, can I have my picture made? Can I sit on Seabiscuit? And Tom goes, sure, why yeah. not? <laughs> yeah. And then one of the reporters said, oh, we've been duped. Yeah. He would never let somebody have their picture made or sit, sit on top of Seabiscuit. Yeah. And that's yeah. when he goes, we've been duped. And they yeah. figured out that it was yeah, not Seabiscuit. Yeah, so like Seabiscuit. if they told the press he's going to go out and practice today at 5, he'd have them out at 5 a.m., not 5 p.m. Yes. Well, it's just funny that even though he never talked, he was always outsmarting the press. Yeah. And then when they would outsmart him, he would get so mad. Yeah. You know, but yeah, yeah, it was just this constant cat and mouse game of him trying to avoid, he didn't want anybody bothering Seabiscuit. Mm -hmm. He didn't want them reporting. Yeah, and the biggest thing was he didn't want anyone to clock in him. He didn't want anyone to know his time. He was very secretive. Yeah, he Mm -hmm. was very, very protective of Seabiscuit. Yeah, I love that whole game between Tom and the, and the press. press yeah. There are some really funny stories in yeah, there. Yeah, and honestly, if I could just go through and read his responses to the press, the things he said, they are hilarious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he might say, he'd say one sentence or three words. but what, Or they'd what, say, well, tell us about Seabiscuit. And he'd go, it's a horse. Yeah, or something, exactly. Something like I mean, that, you know, just, just be... something real dry. Yeah. And always like not very many words. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I loved Tom Smith. Yeah, he's awesome. So, Red Pollard is the jockey that they found. They were worried about who we're going to find to ride Seabiscuit because we don't, we can't just have anybody. It's got to be someone that understands him as temperament. And they find Red Pollard. Yeah, to me, he's the most tragic figure in the book. He's, to Mm. me, he suffered the most as far as physically. Because he was hurt so many times racing. And, and he was in a lot of physical pain his whole life. Now, one thing about Red Pollard that was really sad was during the Depression, you know, there was like six kids in his family. I don't know exactly, but it was mm-hmm, several. Quite and a few. his mom and dad didn't have much money. And his dream was to be a jockey and to right. ride horses. Anyway, he ends up living with another family, and he kind of felt like they just gave him away to this other family. Yeah, the book well, they sent like a abandoned. family. They sent a family member with him while he tried to go out and become successful oh, as a like jockey, an uncle or something. And that guy just abandoned him in like some cowpoke town in like Wyoming or That's Montana right. or you somewhere. You have a much better memory than yeah, me. Yeah, he but, was just abandoned. Yeah. But some accounts they'll make it sound like his family abandoned yes. him, right? And then he literally had to go out. And just make it on his own just to survive and yeah. to get food. He would box, like street yes. box. He would, oh, you yes. know how they he would arrange would, Yes, he would then. box for money and get the snot beat out of him. Right. And just for a little pocket change. Right. And right. one thing that's fascinating to me about Red Pollard, yeah, he was educated and he did come from a family who oh, did they read. they did say that he quoted. He was always quoting Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yeah, he called him Old Waldo. I think he read Shakespeare and, and Emerson, Emerson, and they yeah. said he was constantly quoting the two. And I mm-hmm. thought, how interesting! You've got this guy who's living basically homeless, and he's boxing when he can get anybody to box him for just a little bit of money. He's 
trying to be a jockey, but he's not being very successful. And mm-hmm. it was just, like you said, the how all of these people met in real life is just fascinating. Mm-hmm. He just he was very down on his luck. I think he was in Detroit, Michigan with a buddy when he first saw Seabiscuit. And he offered him a sugar cube, and it was one of the only possessions he had on him. He had a sugar mm-hmm. cube. He gave it to Seabiscuit. Yeah, and Tom Smith was And Tom watching was watching, him. and was like... He just saw something in Red Pollard. Yeah, and it's like Red knew how to interact with Seabiscuit. Right. They just connected. And then when Red got seriously injured riding another horse, if you remember that, he practically died. And so when he's out hurt, then they brought in George Wolfe. Now, George Wolfe was a very famous jockey. Yeah, and he's another one who has a fascinating story. Yes. And he sounded like a really good guy. This is funny. Since George Wolfe had a... A superb pedigree. It says he was the son of a mounted circus <laughs> acrobat and a stagecoach driver. Oh, no, I thought that I was, was like, so... Oh, that's... Is that that's not odd? odd. Okay. Uh, my parents, one of them's a stagecoach driver and the other's a circus acrobat. Yeah. Uh, a mounted cir- circus acrobat. <laughs> um, but anyway, they said he spent his whole life riding horses from the time he was really young. Anyway, he knew horses, okay? Mm-hmm. They said he knew horses better than just about everybody. And they said he was also very very smart. Mm-hmm. said he would research the races before he would ride. They said he would study his horse and he would study the other horses looking yeah. for weaknesses. So Yeah, and that's why when Red Pollard got hurt, they said, no, we only want Red Pollard to ride. We don't want anybody else to ride Seabiscuit. But there was a big race coming up and that's when they said, uh, Red Pollard said, go to George Wolf. Mm-hmm. And then so they interviewed George Wolf and they said, George Wolf basically told them everything they wanted to hear. They already yeah, knew Seabiscuit C- as yeah. well as the owner. And yeah, as they well said, as, how would, what would you do in this race with Seabiscuit? Yeah. He, and he did exactly what And they said, how do, do you know Seabiscuit so well? He goes, well, I've been in, behind him enough in races, losing to him mm-hmm. on my mount mm-hmm. to be able to study him. If you remember the chapter about George Wolf is so interesting. She just mm-hmm. she did a really good job of describing what he was like yes. and his personality. You can tell. He was like, the way she describes him mm-hmm. in real in, in life, he was larger than life. Yes. George Wolf was, and they said he was very uh, a nice looking guy too. Yeah, and another. Oh, I know. I keep coming to the end here, but but George Wolf he had diabetes and he always had health problems, and you know when you're always forcing yourself not to drink water and you're always what's it called when you try to lose weight reducing what happened they think was he would pass out Mm -hmm. and they said sometimes they'd have to go wake him up before races because he'd be asleep remember how he'd just fall asleep at the drop of a hat yeah and so it was sad though he was riding a race and he they they said he passed out and then in the mid-race and Mm -hmm. fell and his head hit so hard it just instantly killed him but What's cool is how many people showed up for his funeral. And I have to say, I, I didn't really plan on talking about it, but the chapter about Seabiscuit's, the last year of his life mm-hmm. and his last days, it was beyond depressing. because oh, you, you, It's like you said, you, it's like he's a person. Yeah, you, know, you, you feel like yeah. he's yours. You feel like he belongs to you yeah. and you don't want to let him go. Mm-hmm. And I guess they think he died of a heart attack at the mm-hmm. age of 14. And, of course, Charles Howard was devastated. And what's fascinating to me about his death is that Charles Howard had him buried somewhere on his ranch. And it's like over a thousand and acres. And no one knows where. And he said he planted an, an oak tree. An oak tree over where he was buried. But nobody knows where to this day. Right. Well, that leads me to my next story. 
as I was doing some research for this podcast, I came up on a Facebook page that said something like Justice for Seabiscuit or something. Mm -hmm. They are claiming on this Facebook page that there's a parking lot which is over where Seabiscuit is buried. Mm -hmm. And they want to remove the parking lot and have like a proper memorial statue set up. They said Charles Howard only told his sons. Yeah, there was only a couple people that actually knew knew where where Seabiscuit was actually buried. But my question is, if it's this huge secret, like they're saying, how do these people know that Seabiscuit is under this this parking lot? Well, why did he do that in the first place? We'll think about it. You have... 75,000 people come to the races, 40 million people uh, listening to on the radio. Mm. I mean, and he, he even opened the ranch once Seabiscuit retired, so and they said thousands of people. I think he was afraid. I don't think he like wanted it to be private. It'd be a spectacle. Mm-hmm. I think he wanted it to be private and respected. Mm. To me, it's almost like a gift, his last gift to Seabiscuit. Oh, You know, think how much he's run mm. and how, you know, they talked about how Seabiscuit ran two yeah. to three times more races than the average yeah. horse. And to me, it was oh, like... and they... Here's your time uh, to rest in peace. And I don't remember the exact mileage, but did you hear me in the preface? Oh, yeah. How many miles he logged on the railroad? He had thousands and thousands of miles traveling on train. Mm He, I have no idea. I could be reaching, but it's like, this is my last gift to you. Rest in peace. You know, you're. No, I'm gonna mm-hmm. have this beautiful tree over you. Nobody's gonna know where you are. Nobody can bother Aww. you. I know. That all I remember is being really depressed. Like, oh, it was I depressing. Mean, I remember like two or three days, like well, just moping around healing. the house. We mourned the horse, you know. She had to ride him in such a way that he has a place in our hearts now. Mm -hmm. And you don't want him to die. And she's just an amazing rider. Yeah, she absolutely is. And what really stood out to me, anytime you have a book that's on this scale, that's Mm -hmm. this good, that we're sitting here gushing about, and that we were both depressed when the horse dies. Oh, yeah. um, It's so obvious to me the amount of research oh she, she I, put into this I read somewhere was it four or six years oh wow. four to six years i'm wanting it to say i'm to wanting to say four years of research and writing yeah. and she has this debilitating she has disease chronic, she has chronic fatigue yeah like when i say oh i'm so tired hers is like literally they said she literally can't raise the spoon yeah, to her they, mouth sometimes she's so weak so her life was paralleling kind of some of the things she talked about in the book. Yes. You know, she was an underdog writing this story. Like, here's mm-hmm. this epic major story that she wrote, and she's doing it at the whole time with this horrible right. fatigue. Yes. You know, where she most, can't even leave, most people... She can't even leave her house. Yeah, most people yeah. can't even function, and she writes this unforgettable novel. Right. Hats uh, off to Laura Hillenbrand. Okay. How many sea biscuits do you give this book? Well, gee, I wonder if the <laughs> listener can guess. Uh, okay. Totally. If I could give it more, I would. But obviously, I'm going to give it five. And I'm going to go even so far to say it's one of my all-time favorite books. I mean, uh, and that's saying a lot. You know, we've read hundreds of books. I would put this in my top five, for sure. I agree. And, and, you know what's funny? Once again, it's I hate so to play devil's advocate Yeah. I can see people reading this book mm-hmm. and going, what's, what's the big they, deal? What's the big yeah. deal? Why do they think this? Then why uh, are we so taken by um, it? I think there's so much humanity in this story. Mm-hmm. It's 
because because we love people and we love animals and, and we are okay with like documentary type stuff. I mean, yeah, there's tons so of history. information. I could see someone I, who's like, quit giving me so much information, yes. might not like it, right? Because there's so, time, but I like all the details. I like what, all and the that's facts. That's what I'm saying. Okay, think, yeah. think about this. We love people. We mm-hmm. love animals. We love history. Mm-hmm. And we love a good story. Yes, but. If someone out there doesn't like a lot of historical facts, mm-hmm. and they think lots these, of information, lots of information, and they're not as touchy feely as we, you know, what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. I think the majority, the average reader mm-hmm. that likes to read is going to love this book, right? But I'm just saying, there, there might be yeah. those few Scrooges out there that go, I, I can see, see I can see someone going, it's just too much information, which yeah. we're okay with. I, to me, I'm a very detail oriented person. I want to know mm-hmm. what Seabiscuit ate. I want to know that he ate his bedding because he was always so hungry you know? yes i want to know all the yeah. little details yeah. so to me i loved it all of it was interesting yes i didn't think anything about this book was boring five yeah. stars how five, about you okay five stars five sea biscuits five sea biscuits this one was definitely a fun one it was definitely worth the wait and just if all of our books could be as fun and interesting as Seabiscuit man this would be awesome hey yeah and if you do happen to read the book or have thoughts leave us a message we're going to put a link to the speak pipe but one thing we didn't talk about one of the greatest races of all time Mm -hmm. was Seabiscuit versus Right. right and so when you read the book you're going to love the chapter about mm-hmm. that race. And to this day, it's still considered one of the best, the greatest, one of the greatest horse races of all, all time. time. Between and, and War Admiral. what's mm-hmm. cool is you can well, go to funny, YouTube and actually see a video. I've watched the video several times now. I have too. You can watch the actual It's race. very interesting. So what was really cool about that story was Seabiscuit was considered... The Western mm-hmm. horse and War Admiral is from the East. Yes, and, and the, the, the Eastern were, people they were thought snooty. they were snooty, and <laughs> yeah. they thought their horses and their their horses yeah, were they better were and faster. Above. They were they were a better pedigree horse, and mm-hmm. and Seabiscuit was just this workhorse that I'll be out in the field plowing or exactly. something, right? And mm-hmm. so and so they kept trying to get these, and these were the two. It was best almost horses. like blue collar versus white collar, exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so these were the, at the time; these were the two most popular horses, mm-hmm. one on the east coast, one on the west. And, and that's a whole other story yes. itself. How they finally got the yes. race to and take they, place. They kept trying and trying to get these two horses together to race, and they it just didn't happen, didn't happen. So when it finally happened, it was the excitement and the anticipation was just out the mm-hmm. roof. And then you just got to read the and book the to, read to see what happened. Laura Hillenbrand <laughs> wrote way, that chapter, yes. and the way she described that race, mm-hmm. you literally feel like you're there on the edge of your seat yeah. rooting for Seabiscuit. It's so. amazing. Okay, I guess we're all gushed out. Uh, yeah, it's late. We're tired. Yeah. But all right. Well, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time on Twin, Twin Talk. Talk.